Warm Pacific greetings. My talanoa tonight is essentially about positionality, identity, activism, and the perfect storm. The perfect storm. The last time I found myself in one of these was as a 17-year-old in the 1970s. Then the world was as is now, in flux. But rather than today's onslaught of COVID-19, rapid climate change and rampant racism, 50 years ago, it was stopping the Vietnam War. It was the oil crisis. It was the postmodern world flexing its muscles, the hippie revolution, women's lib, and the rise of feminism. People and communities on the fringes of Western society vying for a place to stand. Back in the 70s, it was the first time that we here in Aotearoa heard that black was beautiful. Brown is beautiful too, I thought back then, as a 17-year-old. What these two perfect storms have in common is the fight back against these chaotic worlds and oppressive systems by energetic and vital youth-led movements from oppressed communities. Here in Aotearoa, inspired by the Black Panther Party in the United States, in 1966, another youth-led movement, um, a group of 16 and 17-year-olds in Ponsonby formed the Polynesian Panther Party. Our migrant community survival programs in Ponsonby for Pacific communities um, over the crucible years, 1971 to 1973, were in full flight way before the dawn raids, which happened in 1974. How were we to know then? I mean, some people now call us activists, some people call us freedom fighters, uh, some people call us um, moipi. Um, for those of you not take au fait with Samoan culture, a moipi is your proverbial bird, um, bedwetter. You know, young people don't speak, they're not heard. So some, our elders saw us as bedwetters and who um, should be silent, but I'll talk about that a bit more. Um, so how were we to know then, as kids, that these programs would become normalised for not only Pacific people, but for all New Zealanders 50 years later? For example, our TAB, Tenants' Aid Brigade programme, um, were the beginnings of the Tenants' Tribunal that we have today. Our PIG Patrol, Police Investigation Group, um, the formation of the Police Complaints Authority now. Our legal aid book, crafted by a youthful David Longy, would eventually morph into free legal aid in the courts and a massive drop in wrongful arrest statistics back in the 70s. But for me, the story of the Polynesian Panthers is not being told by the New Zealand program that you see called the Panthers. Um, that program, and I believe they're going into a second series now, um, was inspired by the Polynesian Panthers, but it's not our story. Not our story. Um, you'll get our story in that podcast by Stuff, which was called Once a Panther. To me, the, the story of the Polynesian Panthers is the story of the Pacific New Zealand and also the story of New Zealand becoming more and more aware of its real self. 
forging its own identity way at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Um, Aotearoa is shaping this nation's identity. It's the only nation in the world who has a treaty with its indigenous peoples, the Treaty of Waitangi, with the original philosophical intent of living together in harmony and peace. Aotearoa was the first nation in the world to give women the vote. Aotearoa uh, was the first nation to keep American nuclear ships out of its harbours. Aotearoa is the first nation in the world to formalise and attribute human aspects to the mighty Waikato River and Mount Taranaki. Aotearoa is the first nation in the world where its Prime Minister has apologised for the racism of the Dawn Raids so that as a nation we can heal together. Amazing. This is the identity that's been formed, that we are, have been given the luxury of our isolation from the other kind of big land masses, except for Australia, of course. But, you know, we've got an amazing opportunity. And I've been overseas, um, lots of countries, at conferences and things, and I still believe that we have the best race relations in the world. We haven't got it quite right but we're a long way ahead of the rest of the world. In this book, The Platform, The Radical Legacy of the Polynesian Panthers, I cross into new and deeply personal territory, returning to my childhood in Greyland, Ponsonby, a suburb of inner city Auckland in New Zealand, and my experience as a Polynesian Panther party member in my teens. I confront elemental questions of my activism. Is the Polynesian Panther platform in its current three-point form, I have written about and lectured about in books and, and texts spoken about on radio and TV, enacted through my involvement in the Panthers Rap Educator Liberate program. Was it a result of my PPP experience back in the 1970s? Or is it my upbringing as the youngest daughter in a family of eight children of Samoan migrants and embedded Samoan values which have provided the innate force which has driven me to continue the activist work of the PPP over the last 50 years. Did the PPP platform, and I'll tell you what it is now, it's morphed into a three-point. Number one, annihilate all forms of racism. Number two, celebrate mana pacifica, celebrate your ethnic identity, whatever that may be. And number three, educate to liberate. So did that platform drive my life work or did my life experiences drive the platform? Um, is there a difference between the two and does it matter? In traversing the intersection between identity and activism, were these merely rhetorical questions? Did I answer these questions in this book or were they merely a philosophical overture allowing me to approach nuanced issues of identity? Pacific community and Pacific activism. For me, my Samoan identity and Pacific activism has caused a lot of risk-taking. It was not easy. It involved a lot of edge-walking, walking the fine line between what is status quo and what I believed in. Um, but I can honestly say that I have been able to balance my positionalities, 
so necessary to make real and empirical changes and to shift others' positionalities to a better place for a better world. And hopefully I've allowed others to walk away changed, educated, liberated, and ready to ask these questions of themselves. Over the last 11 years, our Educate to Liberate program in the schools, um, we've spoken to thousands of young students and we've exposed them to our experiences growing up as uh, Pacific teenagers in the 1970s and the terrorism of the dawn raids. And they understand. <laughs> um, they, 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 you can see the empowerment that they have in seeing the world through different eyes, being able to make choices for themselves. And a lot of them ha have become to realise that racism is bad. You know, and we tell them racists aren't our enemies, racism is our enemies. And the processes of white supremacy, which I call the three C's, colonialism, Christianity, and capitalism. Uh, and so we're allowing our students to learn about these at a young age is fantastic and would make for a, a better New Zealand. And all the ethnicities that we are faced with in the, in the schools benefit from that. So when we lobbied the government for the apology for the Dawn Raids two years ago, we were really sure that we wanted an educative um, giftings, if you like, from the apology. We didn't want anything to do with immigration status. We didn't want it to be a lump sum paid to a finite number of people. We wanted it to be long-term educative for future generations. And so we wanted Pacific studies taught in schools compulsorily, the Treaty of Waitangi. We wanted racism taught in the schools. And we here in New Zealand, I reckon, have the unique opportunity in this perfect storm moment to annihilate racism. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could make institutional racism illegal? Um, so I think some of you may be interested in, in my own personal story. I mean, where did this activism come from? Why did I become an anthropologist? Why is ethnic identity so crucial to me for this liberation education? There were eight children in my family. My dad um, hailed from the village of Falalatai in Samoa, and my mother hailed from the village of Siumu and in Apia. My dad came to New Zealand via Fiji. There was no direct uh, travel back then in the 1940s that came from Samoa direct to New Zealand. We, 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 they came via Fiji. So there's a Samoan community based in Fiji. He went to stay with his grandmother in Suva. He ended up joining the Fijian army as a 19-year-old and was stationed in Guadalcanal during the Pacific War. And in 1945, he married my mum, Lucy. And um, he migrated to New Zealand with his mum, my granny Annie, that I talk about in the book. And uh, thus began our kind of foray into our lives in New Zealand. Um, my dad, who was from Falatai, which was the very first printing press in Samoa, he obtained a job. Uh, in, in Greylin as a packager, a printer, a printing firm, and um, 
In those days, Ponsonby was so different. It was full of community spirit. There were Yugoslavs, Chinese, Indians. We actually had an Indian panther um, in, a, in our group. Um, his family disowned him because he associated with this Polynesian. And at the time, everyone thought we were gangs. Uh, the TVNZ depiction, you know, um, does that as well. But we weren't a gang. We, were, we had community survival programs that were helping our people survive, um, you know, the, the subordinate positioning, if you like, of migrant families at the time. But, you know, our families were... Um, the, our backyard was like a farmyard. You know, we had chickens running around. And, you know, Dad would just chop the head off a chicken when we needed one for the umul for our oven. And, you know, it was sharing food over the fence with our neighbours. It was playing on the streets, you know, without uh, minding the traffic. So it was very different to the uh, Ponsonby of today, which is the latte-sipping, you know, affluent um, neighbourhood of, of Ponsonby. In 1970, I lost seven members of my family. They all died. Five from a plane crash and two from natural causes. And I started my spiralling downward. At that time, I was a good Samoan girl. Family, church and school was the only world I knew. Um, I went to Auckland Girls Grammar and I felt like a fish out of water. I um, was able to compete with them academically um, because I just had this love of learning. Um, I used to raid my auntie's book cupboard when I was about six and read um, Enid Blyton books and... Um, Jason and the Argonauts and the Golden Fleece. And I just loved reading, and I think that's why I did well at school. Um, but um, I just f didn't fit in. The lunch conversations about boys, parties, fashion, trips overseas, I didn't know anything about that. All I knew was family, church, and school. And so it was a different um, outlook. And so when that Disaster happened um, in 1970. I started spiralling down, and if I hadn't gone to a meeting at my neighbour's house where they were forming the Polynesian Panthers, I could have had a really different result to what I did achieve in the end. So um, it's interesting, and I've spoken to the other brothers and sisters of, of the Panthers who are still around, and that three-point platform has somehow been ingrained in us without us knowing about it. Um, it, it, it drove my work as an academic. Um, I was one of the... Uh, why anthropology? Well, I took anthropology because I was so fascinated with my own Samoan culture and wanted to learn more about it. But there was no Pacific studies then. There was no Māori studies then. It was anthropology. So I was forced to take anthropology, and, and I loved it because... Even though it was, had racist underpinnings in terms of the theories in anthropology, I just loved that it included culture, analysing what culture is. And uh, again, um, that kind of edge-walking that I went through, I couldn't limit myself to one anthropological theory, for example, to do research on my own communities. It had to be an eclectic <laughs> approach and this is where I'm getting it in terms of the beauty of other knowledge systems is instead of just studying a culture in, in the political frame, 
you know, or, or the uh, economical frame or a cultural frame, you can learn about other cultures through their indigenous cultural references. Because the indigenous cultural references are political, economic, and cultural. So it gives you that holistic understanding of others uh, in terms of um, studying other cultures. So that, that, that was a gift, I think, that I arrived at because of my, my being Samoan and, and having these other values to me that were very important. And I think that as an anthropologist, I've hit on a gold mine in terms of excavating these indigenous references, um, you know, um, to help our students learn. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, a lot of times in my office, I get uh, New Zealand-born Samoan girls coming in, students coming into my office, and you know, they they state quite matter-of-factly, our Samoan men are sexist. I says, pardon? Our Samoan men are sexist. And immediately I know that they've taken sociology and learning about feminism. And, and so, so I say, um, do you know about whenga Oh, What's the whenga And I said, in Samoan culture, the whenga is the most sacred and uh, gender bond. It's not husband-wife. It's not father-daughter. It's not mother-son. It's brother-sister. Go away and learn about the whinganga and come back and we'll talk again. And that's what I mean about the, the beauty and, and, and it's gold, uh, understanding the holistic sense of others rather than, you know, letting theory drive your research. You know, so for my PhD, I annoyed the hell out of my supervisor because I chose to be eclectic in my theory. I didn't want the theory to be the thing. I wanted the thing to be the thing and to use the theory that would help me understand the thing the best. And so to me, it was the thing that was important, not the theory. And we all know about Margaret Mead and her theory taking. So um, that's something that I've learned along the way. The Fale Pacifica, I was able to um, be an integral part of its development because of my Samoan upbringing of what I call teo leva. Um, teo leva in the Samoan culture is to value, nurture, and tidy up, if necessary, the social and sacred aspects, spaces of relationships. That's really important, the va. You know, the, the English translation is space. But when you think of, you know, space, it's a void, it's nothingness. Whereas in the Samoan notion of the va, it's the interaction betwe between people, the, uh, the social and sacred uh, interaction. And this is another amazing gold find that I'd made, was I started writing about and teaching about Teo Leva as... Um, and I found out that there was a whole discourse, Falangi discourse on it, called relational ethics. So I had to read up on all this stuff on relational ethics, and guess what I found? Relational ethics is something which is devoid of sacredness and spirituality. So the Western notion of relational ethics it, it does not include that kind of dynamics between the moral and the ethics of behaviour um, and the social. 
aspects of it. So um, these are some of the things. And to, um, the, the beauty about this indigenous reference of Te Oliva is that, uh, and that's why Samoans make the best leaders. Don't quote me on this. <laughs> Samoans make the best leaders because they look after that var with those above, beside, and below. They are not hierarchical like other Pacific groups. <laughs> I won't name them. But um, they are very, um, yeah, you've got to look after that relationship with those above, beside, and below for a win-win situation, good, positive outcomes. And that's how I got that Fale Pacifica built, uh, uh, you know, in Pacific Studies. It was working with the Vice-Chancellor and the university at that level, was working with my colleagues across um, the university and, of course, those students in Pacific communities um, as well. And that's when amazing things happen. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to... Uh, my whole research methodology is to do with the VAR, relational ethics. Um, because I was sick of Pacific research that just lay, got dusty on the shelves. Um, you know, it, it wasn't going anywhere, so I... The Ministry of Education has formalised Te Oliva into an educational tool for research. So this is what you can do when you're an edge walker, when you use your ethnicity and ethnic identity um, to make ch good things happen, to make change happen. To join the Polynesian Panthers, we had to read Seize the Time by Bobby Steele of the Black Panthers in America. And when I read that book, especially about how the Black Panther sisters were being treated. I, I said, what? You know, I, um, I've, in terms of my Samoan upbringing, I said, wow, you know, the Samoan women rule in my family. I mean, this is years of my dad giving his pay packet to mum every payday um, and mum managing the household. A very strong matriarchal influence. Um, and so this is where I started as a 17-year-old thinking, something else is happening here. Um, it's not quite feminism. I, I don't believe I'm a feminist. Um, I believe in our cultural references of whinga that it's a brother-sister gender relationship. And so um, a few years ago, a student of mine started delving into womanism. Anyone heard of womanism? It's, it's, it's an amazing... Uh, it came up... Um, with a black uh, women's movement in America. Um, and it is a kind of an out, outreach of feminism, but it's one where they work with men to make things better for women. It's not uh, opposed to men, uh, as some you know, think. And so working... And what I liked about womanism, I said, aha, that's it. I'm not a feminist. I, I think I, I like this... Uh, direction that womanism is taking, but what it uh, the aspects to it is that it's everyday, uh, it's um, anti-oppressionist, and it's spiritual, uh, which really drew me to it. And I, I think what makes the womanism Samoan is that the brother-sister bond is pivotal in, in our understanding of gender relationships. Um, Another way that gender relationships, uh, the whinga can work in New Zealand is in, like, for example, domestic violence cases. Um, 
the worst thing you can do to a Samoan male is take his children away from him or uh, allow, you're not allowing him near the family home. So in the New Zealand context, we use our legal ramifications for those. But back in the village in Samoa, um, where the houses don't have walls, well, they do now, most of them are whalangi houses now, but if that happened in, in a village, the perpetrator would be dealt to by the victim's family, uh, brothers, or that person would be banished from the village. That would, that's what you would do with a person who is abusing his wife. Um, but in New Zealand, you've got distance, geographical um, aspects, which separates a man from his uh, family. Um, and, you know, it would be a, a lot cheaper for taxpayers if we... My remedy to that or an alternative programme would be just shove that someone man in a room with his mum and his sisters. Honestly, that would work for Samoans, cheaper for the taxpayer, but the legal remedies are not working. It's making them you know, worse in terms of how they are separated from their children. So I'm just trying to give you examples of the value of other ways of thinking about the world. I'm on an a advisory group, which is working for the Ministry of Justice, working on development of an uh, anti-racist framework. That's what I love about Aotearoa. Look at that. We're doing stuff which will change the world for us. And uh, it's exciting. But, you know, I'd really like to reach a stage where we can, um, you know, make institutional racism illegal. What we're finding very difficult, and it's, it's logically difficult, is trying to find a definition for racism. <laughs> trying to find a definition for racism. I mean, there's different kinds, personal, internalised. Um, but what people don't understand for Pacific and people of colour, it's every day. It's every day we wake up to it. We go to school with it. We, we, we go to the malls with it. We go to dinner with it. Every day. And, and Palangis will never understand that. So they really don't know why we're, you know jumping up and down necessarily. But it's, to me, I, I always relegate it to, well, people don't know what they don't know. And so that's why our Educate to Liberate program is so important. And it's just, uh, you know, um, educating others as to the, the nature of difference and how we can get on in a better world. I, I apologise if this is kind of an impossible question to answer, but... Um like, we have tatidity and we have recognised Māori language. Have we... Are we doing enough to, like, deal with the effects of, like, the dawn raids and the racist policies towards, like, Pacific Island people? As Panthers, I, I kind of touched on some of the community survival programmes we did... But we couldn't have done that on our own. We worked with like-minded people. And that's what I tell the students in the schools and they have got something in their hood they're not happy with. I said, surround yourself with like-minded people. We had groups like Ngā Tamatoa. You know, we went to university together. We, we sat in the, in, in the cafe and dodged lectures together. Um, you know, so, so we worked with them closely. I took the petition around 
for Māori language to be acknowledged in New Zealand with Ngātamatoa way back in 1972. Um, and, and so we worked with them. We worked with People's Union, Holtor Racist Tours, all those Palangi groups. And we had one agenda, and that was to eradicate racism. Uh, and so that's why it worked, and we were successful. But I've always acknowledged tangata whenua, and so have the Polynesian Panthers. Um, look, it's so interesting because, um, well, if you're doing anthropology and uh, archaeology and linguistics, you know that Polynesians became Polynesia in uh, Western Polynesia, in the culture areas of Samoa, Fiji and Tonga, right? So we are the ancestors of all the Eastern Polynesians and Māori included. And this is so fantastic because when we go to Marae all around Aotearoa and you have on the paipai the elders who welcome us on, they will either uh, regard us as tuakana, which is older brother, or taina, younger brother. So the ones who call us from Wananui Akiwa tuakana, they are acknowledging that interconnected ancient bond of beginnings, of the origins. And if they call us Taina, it means they say, well, we are the younger brother in Aotearoa, you know, not in the bigger picture. So that is so beautiful. And so we've always acknowledged tangata whenua. An example for me is I would not have pushed or lobbied for a whale patsuvika on campus if there wasn't a marae. We follow in the footsteps of tangata whenua when we're in Aotearoa. Um, and so... The treaty is a really interesting thing because Sir Paul Reeves, in a Treaty of Waitangi Address some years ago, and I really stuck in my mind what he said. He said, New Zealanders should move away from the technical focus of the Treaty of Waitangi, that it's got three articles, that it's between the Crown and the Māori, because what it does, it, it others, other ethnic minority groups, and it's, where do we fit in? Where does Pacific fit in? Um, and rather than focus on that technical aspect, we should focus on the philosophical understanding that what is good for Jimmy is good for me. You know, peace, working together. Let's focus on that. And then that, that uh, is really what the treaty was set up for. So we just have to kind of move ourselves off from the technical, economical aspects of what the treaty is for and, and just work together with... Um, um, so, so I don't feel left out at all as Pacific. Um, I feel that our work is to support tangata whenua in their initiatives and be in solidarity with what they're trying to achieve. And uh, it's the same as Black Lives Matter. You know, I'm a real stalwart for saying, hey, we've got to fix our own backyard before we fix other people's backyards. Um, and so we're in solidarity with uh, Black Lives Matter, but, but we have our own, um, you know, uh, things we have to tidy up in, in our own country first. Um, but we support them totally, yeah. Does that answer your question? Um, thank you so much, Milani. I, I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I'm, I'm wondering... Um, what are some of the challenges in uh, getting, um, getting a more anti-racism message to New Zealanders? What has been your experience? Because it seems like we still have racism issues. 
Oh, yes, we will forever and a day. I mean, but we can make a start um, somewhere. And, and, and I go back to our Educate to Liberate program in schools. We went to a school on the shore, North Shore, and there was a, a young Palangi a student who sat himself in the front row and he would be asking us question after question after question. We'd answer, of course, but you can see he was trying to defend his white privilege. So he would be asking all these questions and be answering. And at the end of these sessions, we always feed back to the students and say, well, what have you learnt from... What are the main things you've learnt from this? And he waited till everybody gave their answer and he just stood up and he said, racism is bad. You know, so, uh, you know, there's a start and that's what we call the, what the revolution is now, is the changing the mindsets. I've always known that the hardest thing to do in this world is to change attitudes. That's why I got my PhD. I said, I've got to change people's attitudes, but I've got to get a PhD to do that. So I did. And, and it has worked. I mean... I was one of the pioneers for ethnic-specific research rather than Pacific research. Pacific doesn't exist. Albert Wentz already told us Pacific Islanders only exist in New Zealand. When I go to Maingere International Airport, I'm a Pacific person, but elsewhere in the world, I'm Samoan. You know, so, so to, to throw money at Pacific people is just wasted because there's no infrastructure that is Pacific. There's a Tongan infrastructure, there's a Samoan infrastructure, there's a New UN infrastructure, but not Pacific. So my push for ethnic-specific research um, was something that I'm proud of, um, where, you know, just researching one ethnic uh, group is complex. Hi. Um I'm, uh, my name is Avalassi and I'm speaking as a young Pacifica female who's just recently started here. Mm -hmm. I didn't come to university originally because it wasn't practical for my family, mm -hmm. so I had to work and my family didn't want me to take on more uh, student debt because we already had familial yes. debt mm. um, and therefore I've had to work in order to be here today. Um, in terms of what put me off in high school to come to the university in the first place was the guidance counsellors yes. simply saying to me, I don't think that's for you, although I have very good grades. Um, and I think what's changed in recent years, thanks to your research, mm. is I thought it was worthwhile to attend this university because there is finally Indigenous epistemological approaches mm. that I relate to and that mm. I want to understand the world okay. in through mm. a lens that I can relate back to my ancestors and mm. truly appreciate rather than the mainstream theorists who are Eurocentric mm. and have Western norms and ideas mm. that are, don't relate to me at all. Yes. So having value, um, value in what I'm learning is what gave me the push and thank God for my scholarship because <laughs> mm. I'm not in debt, but I, I really appreciate research like yours that mm. encourages other Pacifica women to come yeah, and cool. learn. That my advice to you, and now you will have to find the balance. This is the edge walking I'm talking about. You can't dish all the wonderful Palangi theorists and 
uh, in whatever discipline you come from. You have to know that knowledge and then use your own indigenous knowledge to critique that and to find ways to help the people. So uh, it's the balance between your community and yourself. It's the balance between, um, you know, um, Western knowledge and indigenous knowledge. Uh, the balance between a whole lot of, you know, tradition and culture and uh, modernization, all that type of thing. But you will find it. Um, and uh, good luck for that and well done. And I look forward to you graduating soon. You know, a number of years ago, in one of your earlier publications, you described Samoan identity as this, there was this identity tension that when we went to Samoa, we were seen as Balangi. Mm. Uh, and when we were here in uh, Aotearoa, we were described as islanders or bungas. Do you think over the course of since the Polynesian Panthers and up until now, that sort of identity tension amongst Samoans or New Zealand-born mm. Samoans has sort of eased a bit or um, how would you see it now? I still think it's there. I, I still think it's there. And that's um, my work that I've done on the effective tie, effective tie, um, which is much more than an emotional tie to your identity. It's one where you act on that emotion. We can all be emotional about something, but whether we act on it, is the crucial thing, and that's what makes it an effective tie. And I still think there's that that banter, but we have to own it in terms of saying, well, our rallies, I go to the village, I'm not this person with a PhD, uh, you know, come living in Ponsonby, I am my father's daughter, my grandfather's granddaughter, and I'm expected to be part of the kin group or the family group, do my duties. I'm not supposed to walk around in high heels and tight jeans in the village. <laughs> I'm supposed to put on a lava lava and a t-shirt and just work and serve. Because, um, and so, and a lot of New Zealand-borns don't know how to take that. Um, the, uh, it's the humble ones who act with humility that kind of understand that. I mean, the story I tell my students are really sad on my first visit to Samoa, my dad's village, my nephews had to give up their bedroom for, for the New Zealand um, rallies. And so I went into my young nephew's bedroom and on the walls, plastered on the walls, I mean, when I was their age, I had Elvis Presley and all, you know, film stars, you know, uh, across my wall. They had um, warehouse ads. They had wallpaper, like wallpaper, paper to paper, Warehouse ads, and I just felt that tinge of sadness. You know that 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 this is what um, they are longing for, and and that was when the effective tie hit me. My first visit back to Samoa was that day when I saw that, and so my my work has been to address that, and 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 don't look at um, it's just a point of difference. Um, they call us Palangis white people when we go back to our village. But that's only because they've never been to New Zealand and they don't know what New Zealand is and what it's like. Uh, and so it, it's, it's nothing to be upset or angry or bitter about. It's just a fact that we are looked at differently. And so, um, yeah, that, 
that thesis for, I mean, that ethnic identity is crucial because when I was doing my PhD, I went to my Fefeao church, uh, the Reverend Seol, and, and I just discussed with him about some topics. What, what research would you like done? And he said to me, I want you to find out why our young people are leaving the churches. And so that was my journey onto ethnic identity. Um, but it's crucial. After my thesis, I realised that there is a, there's a definite relationship between ethnic identity confusion and schizophrenia. But, but that difference is medicalised by being identified as schizophrenia when it didn't have to be, that it could have just been this psychological kind of uh, not knowing where they fit in in society. Um, and so it's really crucial. And Sam Manuela and myself have started to look at that, that, that really important thing between ethnic identity and well-being. A lot of our kids uh, in the gangs... I believe because they 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 haven't worked out who they are. It's an you know ethnic identity confusion. And I remembered when I came to university for my first year, I was so empowered um, um, by what I was learning. And what I the main thing I was learning was that hey, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And this is what the apology is doing for our people. All the stories are coming out now about members of the same family not realising that each other was being dawn raided, had been dawn raided. It was such a shameful thing to... Um, and so... Um, and I remember thinking, I want to take learning about anthropology and university studies to the gangs <laughs> or to the prisons. You know, that was my first thought. It would empower them to take the angst and the bitterness away and say, oh, it's society's problem. It's not me. It's not the cultural deficit model. You know, and it was... Um, and I still think that. And oh, oh, I've got to share this with you. One of our school visits, they were considering to change their school to a Polynesian Panther Party chartered school. <laughs> Would you believe? Oh, well, we're getting somewhere after 50 years. But, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing that our young people are needing, direction. They need their identity. And I used to get PhD students coming into my office saying, I don't know who I am. <laughs> I want to do a thesis on Samoan women poets, but I'm not Samoan enough. I can't speak Samoan. I can't... I said, look, go away and work out who you are first. And I'll give you some resources. Just, just get over that. And that's what made me teach a course on ethnic identity in Aotearoa, was to get our stage one students over that angst about their identity because there's too much work for us to be doing for our people. Yeah. Another question which really, you know, get, we get a lot in the schools is these young primary school kids. I want to be an activist. How can I be an activist? And the brothers were likely to say, well, you've got to tidy up your room when your mum says so. You know, because it's discipline, it's respect. You know, you've got to do the basics right. And you have to be prepared to, to, to die for the cause. And that's why, to me, the climate change thing, I think, really? Climate change? Would you die for climate change? You know, it's, it's just... For some of them, it could be just trendy. 
to be jumping on that bandwagon. But really, when you, you know, think about it carefully, um, what is it that you are willing to die for to make change? And um, the activism that the Polynesian Panthers, uh, it comes from a deep love of our people. It came from a deep love of our parents working in the factories back in the day. It came from a deep love of changing um, things for the better uh, in our hood. And I think that's true activism right there. So yes. I'm a young person, and I know a lot of Polynesian Panthers were young at the time as well. How, I was wondering, how did, how did the Polynesian Panthers kind of get heard, get their message across? Um, and get taken seriously by people in power? And what were the difficulties you experienced mm. in that? Um, good, very good question. How were we taken seriously? Well, at the time, we didn't know. We were so pragmatic. We just went and did what we had to do. You know, a program needed doing. We had to do a homework centre here. We had to um, protest there. We just did things without intellectualising what we were doing. Uh, and the, the, the beauty of that is that we got things done. We didn't want recognition. We just knew we had to act. And to be honest, when we were most at our dangerous, at our most active, was the, the crucible years, three years, 71 to 73. And then after that, we just dissipated. We grew up, I guess. Some of us got pregnant. Some of us had to get a job. You know, but at that moment, when you're 17, 16, you've got that time and you've got that energy and you've got that fear, you know, you haven't got that fear. You just want to do things. And, uh, and that's why it's the young people who will be the vanguard of change in this moment of flux, in this perfect storm that we're living through right now. Okay, uh, so I wanted to touch on something that you said earlier uh, regarding the three C's, how you were talking about um, capitalism, Christianity, and colonialism. Mm. And particularly I wanted to touch on Christianity because I can understand, um, I've been to Samoa quite a few times in my life, uh, mm. uh, uh, 13 times, and very good friends with people in a village of Manasseh. Oh, um, okay. And one of the things I've noticed is the very integral nature of Christianity. Um, but I do, uh, like... I guess from an um, ethnicity context, is can those two things exist? Because a lot of the times with the uh, Christian dogma, that can be quite controlling. I'm just wondering from your personal experience, mm. how have you managed to marry those two things together? Oh, easy answer. I haven't. <laughs> no, but that's so important because I often wondered where my criticality came from about Christianity. And as a kid, we went to um, Newton PIC. It was be between the Pink Pussycat and the Pleasure Chest in K Road um, back in the day. But, um, and uh, we used to sit these at Sunday school examinations. We used to get top marks in the whole country, you know, 99%. We used to memorise Bible verses. We used to know all the Bible stories, right? But there was one thing. Every time I went to... Um, listen to the sermons of our ministers, there was one line that just kept getting me, and it was, in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. And I, I, I couldn't get my mind around it. I said, oh, so to be Christian, we have to leave our culture at the door. We're not Samoan. We're not Cook Island. 
Does that what it, they mean? So I've always been critical. And then it made worse, I used to ask, when you look up Samoan history, they divide history in terms of the time of darkness prior to 1830 when John Williams Christianised 90% of Samoans, um, and the time of light. That's the, that's the only notion of their history that they have. That's how strong Christianity has been embedded in, in terms of its colonial context. And if you look at it, it was prophesied by Nafanua that a new order would come because in Samoa there was endemic warfare, endemic warfare. You had families killing each other off because of titles, because of boundaries. And Nafanua prophesied a new coming, a new order. And when John Williams sailed into Savai, that was it. So there was that 90%, almost 90% conversion to congregationalism. And so I, I used to have my dad up and I used to say, Dad, what happened to our ancient Samoan religious beliefs before 1830? He would give me that look, you know. You shouldn't ask me those sorts of questions. But I've never been able to, you know, reconcile that. So now I have gone some way. I've read Solo Leva. The Solo Leva is the origins of Samoan culture but based in Manua. And in that Solova is Tangaloa Langi, is the overall. He is the progenitor of all Samoans, not just metaphorically, but we carry the blood of Tangaloa Langi. Not many people can say that, but that's why every Samoan is a Suli, which means uh, a, a, a Matai in waiting, a chief in waiting. Every Samoan has the potential to become a title chief because of their service to their village and their families, right? So I've started to, to um, write these really confronting <laughs> articles about Tangaloa Langi and, um, you know, let's just excavate our own Samoan religious beliefs, which has been subsumed by the three Cs. And the last time I went to Samoa, which was before COVID, I really felt suffocated by Christianity and how our Prime Minister lives and breathes and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's very strong. And so I'm trying to change my Lua Theological College. <laughs> I'm trying. The students that come out of that college are awesome. They come to the New Zealand universities. They, they become critical about uh, Christianity. But guess what? They go back to Samoa and become Fei and <laughs> and just sit right in, you know, just into, into what it's like. So, yeah, I think that for, for students, don't be afraid to be critical um, and back yourselves up. And we've got that whole plethora of Indigenous knowledges in our, in our stories and our songs and our names and our histories that we can use to justify our way of thinking about things. But I, um, what was that? Um, I think the three C's is magic. I think it is a combination of those three things. That's where white supremacy comes from, are those processes of the three C's together. Thank you.